What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm your host, Jordan. With me, as always, is Jared. How's it going, Jared? It's going well. We're trying out something different today, uh, both in format and in style. So hopefully you like it. Yeah, we figured since we're releasing things on YouTube as well as on our podcast, we try the cool YouTube thing and stream and generate content by just sniping someone else's content in the endless <laughs> loop of just bottom feeding content. Yeah. yeah. That's the kind of high quality stuff you get on this channel. That is true. However, I've never seen anybody respond to this particular video or this topic either. So what we're doing today is we're going to be watching a video. Um, we'll tell about you what the Shroud about. of Turin. Yep. About the Shroud of Turin. And then we're going to basically respond, but kind of so you guys can get an idea of what it's like in our brains when we're thinking about a topic for the podcast, right? What things make us pause, ask questions? Where do we, you know, find fallacies in their what they're saying? If there are fallacies, where do we see things that they're doing that are, are good and proper? And so we kind of want to go through the video. We may not watch the whole thing. We'll jump around if we feel like it's dragging on, but we kind of want to take you along the journey of what it's like to be Jared and Jordan and be skeptical and so we can give ourselves reasons to doubt that what this claim is is true. So, Right. Before we jump into the video, we're going to give you our fallacy of the day. Today's fallacy is the argument from authority fallacy. Mm. Also known as the appeal to authority. So, Right. So this one is an extremely common fallacy to get accused of doing anytime you cite a source. Anytime you say, well, scholars in the field or such and such doctor so-and-so says, immediately, you're, it's an appeal to authority. Do your own research. Yeah. The rallying cry of the ignorance. Oh, man. So well, it is a fallacy to um, appeal to an authority as like definitive and uh, the end-all be-all proof that a thing is true. So the way it would be fallacious to use this is if you said, well, Dr. Joe says X is true, therefore X is true. Right. And that's the end of it, because Dr. So Joe said so. That's the fallacious part. Like, just right. because they said it, it's true. And that's right. It may be true or not true, or he may be, his statement may be true or not true. Both could be true, Right. The, the, the statement from Dr. Joe could be true, and the thing could be true, but it's not true because Dr. Joe said it. Right. So authorities can be wrong. Even ex, even well-informed experts can be mistaken. So that is where it's fallacious. Now, where it's not fallacious, though it is often mistaken as fallacious, is to say, well, Dr. Joe, who is an expert in this field, he's an expert in this specific thing, says that X is true. Therefore, that makes it more probable, or I that gives me reason to believe that X is probably true. Right. We're we're making a assessment of what the expert said. We're going to an authority because they're an authority, but we're not making a definitive statement that that is the only reason that that is the statement right. or the hypothesis is true. So, so what you want to do whenever you're looking for evidence or an authority, you want to make sure that the thing you're the person or source you're appealing to is in fact an authority note that having a phd or an md having a doctorate in one thing doesn't make you an expert in everything you right. know if, if you go back to one of our very first episodes we did uh vaccines and this was not covid vaccines we're talking about like 
This is before the whole, the before times. <laughs> yeah. This is early vaccine, anti-vaxxer stuff. And the person we were debunking at the time was a doctor, but he was a chiropractor and he was not an expert in virology or any of that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Right. So you want to make sure that the expert that you're looking at is actually an expert in this specific thing. Ideally, you want to look at more than one expert because one guy can be wrong. I mean, if you there's a lot of experts. If you dig through enough physicists, you're going to find a physicist who believes some cr- pretty crazy stuff, right? Yeah. And in fact, in the young Earth creationist community, this is very common to do. They will cherry pick the one physicist who agrees with them and is also a young Earth creationist or the one biologist who went to school, did all the hard work, got their degree in biology, and now says evolution isn't true. So. Absolutely. That is a very common young earth uh, tactic. So you want to look at a variety of experts. But if you look at, as a layman, nobody can be an expert in in everything. Most of us aren't experts in anything. So if this guy, I'm not an expert in anything, (laughs) except maybe Dungeons and Dragons, possibly. So if you look at, say, evolution is a great example. You may not personally understand all of the reasons why people think evolution is true and that's fine i mean it'd be better if you did but fine but if 99.9 percent of well-informed educated biologists and basically all the peer-reviewed research says that it's true and one nut job working for ken ham says it's false that does not mean it is true because that would be an appeal to authority however as a layman you can say well it's likely that it's true i i can apply this heuristic probably they all believe it for a good reason, right? Right, yeah. And, and that's something we've definitely preached on this podcast and this it, before is the fact that, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, we can't reinvent the wheel every time we want to be something. So there has to be a level of, you know, presupposing the work and the studies that have come before us. So um, Always being open to revision. Correct. You can, it, you're always, every single conclusion is provisional. Pending new evidence. Yes. Okay. I think we've beaten that authoritative horse into the ground now. So there, uh, and because Jordan said it, it's therefore it's true. So, right. I All am right. the only authority, in fact, <laughs> that you can appeal to non fallaciously. All right. So a little background about the Shroud of Turin. So um, we had did um, a crossover event with the the gents from Proselytize or Apostatize podcast, and uh, in the pre-show we were talking about the Shroud of Turin. And, uh, you know, they had said that there was some good studies out there. They were somewhat convincing. And so we started looking into Shroud of Turin. We were going to do a full-blown, like, you know, episode on the Shroud of Turin to examine the claims, examine the evidence. But in doing so, we found this video that we came across. And we thought it would be good to just kind of, let's just examine the video, right? So this video, I'm going to pop it up here. Um if I can get it to pop up. So it's called The Shroud of Turin, 21st Century. Um, And what made this video stand out is we're going to play through it, but it has a very similar um, apologist checklist, I would say, is a good way to put it. And and we'll pause when we we get there. But it also, if you're listening on the podcast, you can't appreciate the visual. Maybe jump over to YouTube just a second just so you can see it. <laughs> it looks like this is a shaky, like found footage 
from like the 90s <laughs> this guy's talking in like 20 late 2021 because yeah. i thought this was like a recording from like 20 years ago until he was like and then last year when COVID, hit, i was like what like <laughs> Yeah, it looks like a video of somebody set up like a, a you know a high eight cam in the back of an auditorium to record his slideshow projector, and he's got like ching ching slides popping up. So yeah, all right. Well, so what we're gonna do, and this is our first time doing this, so we may hit a few bumps in the road, but we live and we learn. So let's just kind of dive right in and see what uh, what we have to say here. Thank you so much, Mace and Vicky, and for the invitation. It's a faith. Maybe this is something that's going to kick me. All right. So I was kind of fast forwarding through introductions because we don't need to hear him thanking everybody. So let's let's see what he has to say. A lot of my recordings are uh, just Google and you can Google Shroud Phillips and a lot of that shows up. So why did this all start? It started because I raised Catholic, but when I got to Notre Dame, I was a smart aleck. And I thought I knew everything, and my face started wavering a little bit. And then I met this wonderful lady, my wife, Bridget, who never wavers in her faith. I love the characterization of doubt here. <laughs> I was good. Then I got, I was a good Catholic. Then I got to Notre Dame, and I was a smart aleck because I had doubts. But yeah. thank goodness I had this wife who never doubts anything. Yeah. <laughs> Right off the bat, doubt is bad. <laughs> so, um, Just keep that in mind. Yeah, this, this story gets great here, though. And then I married her. And one day at 19, I married in 69. One day around 1975, I saw on television for the first time the Shroud of Turin. So I said, hmm, I have a woman that I love. I'm wavering in my faith. Maybe this is something that's going to kick me in the jaw. First of all, this guy's got a pretty sad life. If you know, if the Shroud of Turns was going to kick him in the jaw and like save his marriage, I don't know what's going on with his marriage. Also, <laughs> motivated reasoning much? Like, man, my marriage is failing and all of my life is going to crumble unless this thing ends up being true. <laughs> yeah. Wow, wouldn't you know it? It was convincing. Come on. Yeah, you're poisoning the well from the start here, so. So I said, well, the first thing I have to do is convince myself this is not baloney. So uh, I had <laughs> one way to think about it, and that's with my highest level of education is an allergy immunology. What? what? Well, talk about saying the quiet part out loud. I don't want to spend <laughs> the entire video talking about this guy's intro, but I, he, he literally just <laughs> said, this must be true. Like, yeah. and he needed to convince himself it was true, right? Like, right. I need. He's going into this examination, stating explicitly that he must, as his goal, this must, this must convince him to be true. Like, come on. Yeah. Uh, so, a couple more seconds of this because there's something I want to point out here. But so the shroud just happened to have pollen on it. So I said, all right. So I've been served this on a silver platter. 1975. I'm a doubting know-it-all physician, okay? So I'm going to really unmask this as a fraud because I'm going to read everything on the pollen. And I did, and I did not unmask anything. I got convinced it could not be faked. All right, so this, I, I find this, um, I'm not going to say his story's not credible, 
But I, I doubt his claims here because this is a story that's told over and over and over again in the apologist communities. Think about people like Lee Strobel. They were an expert and they went out to prove that Christianity was false. And lo and behold, guess what? They couldn't do it and they got convinced that it was true. This guy's an expert in pollen of all things. And there happen to be, pol- well, there's pollen everywhere in the world, right? So. If, if I had a nickel for every hard nosed atheist who converted after, uh, after doing his deep investigation, I'd have like that I've heard of personally, I'd have like 10 nickels, which you is not a lot, but it's more than you'd think, you know, yeah. what's, the, what's the other famous, uh, cold case, um, guy. Um, oh, uh, Jay Warner Wallace. Jay, yeah, exact same story over and over. So, but I actually am intrigued by this whole idea of pollen because it's coming at it from a different approach, right? Like, so if if there were traces of pollen that we could somewhat get some information off of, perhaps we could date it, we could point it to a specific time and place where this pollen or was region generated, or region, yeah, exactly. So there may there may have been something there to the pollen. So you're going to see later there's individual pollen on it that I'm super familiar with that is in Jerusalem, and then later in Constantinople. And then later in France, every place the shroud has been, there's sample pollen, no place else on earth but those places. So that convinced me, all right? Then I became a lifelong fan and I read everything. And then my kids, uh, I trained, uh, not trained them, but coached them in soccer and baseball and then they all graduated, had a nerve to disappear. So they disappeared and I had nothing to do and I said, why don't I give talks? So 11 years ago I started it and here I am. All right, so the only thing that convinced him about this the shroud being accurate was the fact that it had pollen on it from places where the shroud had been. Though, to be fair, if I have no idea who this guy is or his credentials, but let's assume that he's being honest. Uh, he's a pollen expert, and he's talking about pollen. So at least in this instance, this is an expert talking about the thing he's an expert in, which is good. Right. So my, my skeptical... Uh, senses are tingling though here, right? Because immediately, if if something just had pollen on it because it went there, that doesn't mean that Jesus actually rise from the dead and imprinted his figure on it. Though, right? It just means that the the thing, this piece of cloth, just happened to be in that area. Like that's the only yeah. thing it means. So, all right, let's see what he has to say. Um, let's jump up ahead a few minutes because he does drone on a bit. Yeah, he's a little bit of a talker. So this is where he starts getting into... This is what I wanted to bring up here. So, all right. The scientific proof of the resurrection. As of now, I'm going to divorce myself from my faith just for a second. And I'm just going to become a pain-in-the-neck, know-it-all doctor. All Good. Right? That's exactly what you should all do. Right. So Stick I think to the your scientific experience. proof that the first time in history, as of 2005, and you're going to see why I pick on that date, that the shroud is real. All right, so here's the premise. The premise is either it is or it isn't. It either represents part of the resurrection where Jesus on purpose left an image for us to secure our lousy faith abilities and and make it a little more aggressive and do things better, or is it a medieval fraud? All right, well, first of all, I think this is a bit of a false dichotomy, is it not? Like, there could be other options. He had me in the first half when he said it either is authentic or it isn't. I mean, okay, that's just law of identity. Yeah. <laughs> either a thing is A or it isn't A. Okay, cool. And then he went into the false dichotomy. There could potentially be other options, but whatever. I The, the important thing is either this was the shroud that Jesus was buried in or it isn't. Yeah. Okay, fine. So, I think that's what he's really trying to say. Yeah. 
but, but again, just because he was buried in it doesn't mean he raised from the dead. So true. Yeah. yeah. So, and and he's making the dichotomy that it he was buried in it and it witnesses his resurrection. So yeah. All right. So I'm going to go through all the points of science, mm-hmm. and I like to refer to the physicist in the back there. Who's an atheist, okay? Hey, John, thanks for following me. I'm joking, of course. But the physicist obviously knows more than me because he's a physicist, not a lowly doctor. But the fact I'm that he's an say atheist everything that that physicist cannot disagree with except the conclusion. Every single point I make is irrefutable. I'm not lying to you at all. You're my Spoiler. patient. I'm not lying to you as a doctor, okay? It's not. <laughs> I, I've watched parts of this video, and I can tell you right now definitively that claim is false. <laughs> All right. That's... So, so hang in there and, you know, remember your questions or write them down. All right. Here we I'm go. I'm sure we'll have plenty. <laughs> so who's on my side here? For the popes through history, let's just talk about modern history, the last 20, 30 years. The popes have never come out and said the shroud is real. But my favorite pope is the wily... John, St. John Paul II, who said he believes in it without saying it. Look at the quote. Instead of icons made by man. Well, if you have an icon and it's not made by man, who made it? Okay, so he's saying without saying it directly, this is an icon not made by man. All right, wait, first, we're going to skip through this in a second, but like, cool. This is your very first piece of scientific evidence is that the Pope <laughs> said. That's true. Uh, yeah. So you want to front load like the best stuff first. That's when your audience is most engaged, you know. And he says, I have irrefutable scientific evidence that that physicist can't dispute. Okay, you ready for it? You ready? Okay, so this Pope one time, he said, come on, the Pope? Really? That's the critical source? That That's the disinterested well, source that you're going to like yeah. appeal to? The and the Pope, Pope didn't say it. He just said it without saying it, right? Like, Right. Yeah. Like, I cannot imagine a more biased source. I cannot. He's literally the head of the Catholic faith. Right. Maybe if it was like the, the president of the satanic temple or something like that coming out and saying it, like. It still wouldn't <laughs> matter, but at least then I can understand why you'd put it in there. Right. Yeah. So, all right. I'm going to. Um, Let's skip through the, this, the, I think the Pope mining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Pope mining. <laughs> all, right. all right. Now, what you hear about the shroud on TV is always limited. It's going to, and you never hear the things you're going to hear tonight. You're going to hear things tonight that will just astonish you. But if CNN or History Channel actually said those in detail, you would be overwhelmed to believe it. So they always leave stuff out. But tonight, nothing is going to be left out. All right, so we can begin with the cloth itself. This is a picture of a piece of it cut off for carbon dating um, back in 1988. So it's a first century style herringbone weave cloth. Now, for this to be 2,000 years old, does that look like old cloth? All right. First of all, I don't know if this is actually uh, a picture of the cloth, right? He's just post putting a picture up here. So on a serious note here, like I would want to, if, if I'm looking into this claim seriously, I would want to have some sort of citation uh, or... or um, pedigree with this photo to say this is actually a picture, a piece right. of the cloth, right? But 
more to the, the thing he just said, he put it up there and he said, does this look like a 2000 year old cloth? And everyone said no, which means nothing. It yeah. means literally nothing. First of all, whether or not I as a lay, I have no idea what 2000 year old cloth looks like. How could I know? Like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, was it held in a vacuum? How, how was it preserved for the entire time? <laughs> like, yeah. And even, even if it like doesn't look like it, it maybe it doesn't look like it because it was well preserved. Maybe it doesn't look like it because it's not 2000 years old. I don't know. This is a meaningless data point. Yeah. All right. So. No, it looks like somebody just did it yesterday. All right. So that's a little, I'm, these are just little hints. These aren't the big things, but it looks too new. Also, I, ironically, his, his argument that, th so <laughs> I don't know if anyone is familiar with the Shroud of Turin thing. The doubters, the people who say it's not authentically like Jesus stamp uh, of the resurrection say it wasn't, it's not 2000 years old, right? That it was made as a forgery later. And he is arguing it is in fact 2000 years old, starting by saying, gee, this thing does not look 2000 years old is not a great way to start arguing <laughs> that it's not 2000 years old. I don't I'm know. Wait, seems I'm like waiting a, for the, the hook here. I don't know what's like coming. A, a, a poor tactical decision. <laughs> yeah. All right. So here's some good, man, this, this PowerPoint presentation is, Pretty high quality. It's killing it. All right. So what's interesting about it is, as I said, it's linen. It's high quality, which fits the story of the Bible of uh, Joseph Arimathea, rich person, maybe providing the cloth. Has blood on it, which is extremely important. But number one all is the image. The fact sure. that a dead person bled bodily fluids. I mean... I was going to dispute that and say that you don't know that it's a dead person, but no matter like whether it's medieval or not, the person who bled on it is definitely dead. They're definitely dead so. now, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, but the, but the image, like, yes, that is the most important thing. And if we haven't said this already, the shroud of turn is basically a shroud that's purported to be the burial cloth of Jesus. Uh, and it has an image imprinted on it in some way, whether that's blood stain or some other form of, yeah. of image it's on there front and back. And it depicts uh, a person who uh, apparently underwent crucifixion because they have wounds on their hands, uh, well, uh, wrists, wrists uh, yeah, on, the, on the wrists, on their ankles, and then uh, it also has what appears to be the wounds, a uh, crown of thorns, like on the on the like forehead, puncture wounds all on their forehead, and then and as well as the spear mark in the side, apparently. So it it looks at all intents and purposes to match up with the depiction of how Jesus was crucified in the gospel account. So. The image is everything because it's a pixelated photograph 3D image. Did you hear that before? Maybe not. And guess what? We've been trying for a long time. But like, no, it's not though, right? Like, it definitely isn't. No matter what else you tell me, no matter the rest of this thing, it is a two-dimensional clock. <laughs> yeah. It is not a pixelated photographed 3D image. I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean by pixelated. If you're like every, like, the, the pattern, the herringbone, you've got like the up and down threads, right? right? If you considered those pixels, I, I don't know, maybe. Kind of like old uh, pointillism or something? You yeah, know, like. I don't know. Seems like a stretch to say it's like a digital photograph, basically, but okay. And to answer your question, no, I've never heard anybody say that before. So That's true. So, hey, yeah. that is a true claim. The scientists yeah. of the world to duplicate it, and they, can, and they cannot. So 2011, I was invited to be... All right, I, I do want to, I, 
didn't mean to pause it so often, but I do want to hit on this one thing real quick. Um, just because somebody can't duplicate something doesn't therefore mean that it has to be the proof Miraculous. that Jesus yeah, r- was risen from the dead, right? So, so it, even if modern scientists could, do not know exactly how someone in the past did it, that, like you said, doesn't mean that someone in the past could not do it. Uh, a good example is I'm fairly certain that we don't know exactly how Greek fire was made. If you're not familiar with it, basically it was some kind of substance that lit on fire when exposed to air and they used it in naval combat. It was a closely held secret. It's one of the only like weapons in history that was very powerful and useful and has completely disappeared. Now we know of things that catch on fire when they're exposed to air. So, I mean, we have like an idea like, okay, this is a plausible thing, but as to exactly how they did it, we have no idea. Yeah. And well, I, don't, I have no idea might be saying it too strongly. We don't know. We can't. We duplicate cannot it. duplicate Greek fire with modern technology. Right. Doesn't mean it never happened. Yeah. Some other examples from archaeology is the um, um, Stonehenge. Like, how do they move them big ass stones? Like, we have some ideas, but like, you know, they've done some things. And then the pyramids down in um, uh, in South America, where, like the stones are cut so fine, and the stones came from hundreds of miles away. Like. We haven't been able to duplicate that even with like modern tools. So Anyways. none of that means that aliens did it. Correct. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was aliens. <laughs> right. A member of the 137 International Shroud Science Group. Those are real scientists around the world. Two or three of us are communication people. That's why I'm in it. So I get their emails all the time and I keep updating my talk. All right, so let's get a feel for what happened, that the shroud gives us information on what happened scientifically at the moment of the resurrection. All right, this should so be to good. understand it, we have to understand the image. So the rigor mortis body of a nude Christ was laid on a cloth in the tomb, and the top of the cloth was furled over the top of his body. So when the moment of resurrection happened, the image generates to this piece of the cloth and that piece of the cloth. So it's a front image and a back image. And if it was faked in the time of the Middle Ages, the bishop had to hear from the faker that I have a nice picture of Jesus nude. Was that going over well? No. I, what? I don't know. Would it have? And even if it didn't, so what? Like, So, okay, so... That claim, this is basically like an appeal to the audience's conception of what a prudish medieval bishop was like. Right. Right. That's what he's appealing to. He's not citing any kind of historical documentation that that is the case. Basically, what he's kind of trying to make here is like an argument from embarrassment. This would have been embarrassing or not something that someone making up a story would make up that Jesus was naked because that would have been embarrassing or problematic and therefore they did they likely didn't right? right but you need to establish that a it would in fact be embarrassing not to us or to our conception of them as laymen but like using good historical methods would it have actually been a problem one and two you need to consider whether there's any other reason why you might have had because embarrassing details get included in real stories that people make up all the time. In fact, if you're a good storyteller, you know, and making up embarrassing details is a great way to sell your story. Right. Exactly. And if you know, if you have a story that a thing happened, 
a certain way and it's well established in everyone's minds, you, if you're going to make a forgery related to it, you have to include the details that everybody knows. Otherwise no one's going to believe your forgery. If, if for instance, let's say Spider-Man or not, let's say Spider-Man was real and I was making up a fake story about Spider-Man. Okay. I cannot pretend that he didn't get bit by a spider. I have to include the spider because no matter how I feel about spiders, I have to because that's Spider-Man, right? right? So if everyone knows that Jesus got buried in the tomb and if perhaps everybody knows he got buried naked, well, then my Jesus better damn well be naked. Now, <laughs> exactly. I, I'm not saying that any of this is necessarily the case, but these are the kinds of things he would need to demonstrate before this became compelling. Yeah. The other part that I'd want to hit on this too is um, what I would look into is like ancient Near Eastern burial practices around the first of the century first century, mm-hmm. right? So like, is what he's describing here in line with what we know about burial practices in first century Judea? Like, I, I don't know, uh, but that'd be something I would try to research after the fact to examine this claim. All right. So that is a little odd that a person in the Middle Ages would have done such a thing. All right. This is a picture that I took when I went to see the shroud with my wife in Turin, Italy, 2015. There's the guard. And you can see... It's a full-length front image, head-to-head, with a back image. So here's the face, the arm. For those who might be listening on the podcast, can't see the video, basically the shroud, like, went under under Jesus's bottom, so he was laying on it, and it wrapped back around to his head. So if you unfold the whole thing, you'd have a front and back image. That's what he's showing. Kind of like how you make a snowflake, but you cut it open. Anyways. Yeah. Jesus was a snowflake. That's all I'm saying. The chest, the leg. You're going to see this a lot better. Just showing you the whole thing. And there's the back of the head, his back, buttocks and legs and feet. Now, here's an enhanced computer. I've I've turned up the gain on the uh, dark side. And you see the front image a lot better with the gains turned up. So it's a 14 foot long cloth, three feet wide, which is exactly cubit eight and two. So it's cubit measurement where they cut this thing out. So I, I think he's trying to say that that because it just happens to be in line with cubits, like even cubits, there it's lending credibility to the fact that this was a first century thing because they used cubits to measure things back and then. Like I don't that maybe okay. it just happened to have it the right length. I, I don't know. Like <laughs> I, I have no idea. Yeah, that's weird. Um, let's cut. Let's uh, skip through here a little bit um, to get to the good the good science. If you want to see a picture of the shroud, Google the shroud. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty uh, impressive. I mean, it's a pretty cool picture. Yeah. You just have to take my word for it. Okay. So you can see how the... <laughs> Wait. You just have to take his word for it, okay? <laughs> cloth makes sense to cut for the rigor mortis position. Okay. These are all this tremendous number of details that some guy in the Middle Ages never would be smart enough to do. Okay. So I did hear this. So what he just described was how the cloth, like the knees weren't touching on the bottom... Um, and like the touch points and that there's blood and everything. And he like puts out a, a bunch of details and he's like, somebody in the middle ages could never have possibly made this up. Really? Like the, the crippling lack of imagination. You, you could think like somebody in the middle ages has never seen a body. Is that what, is that like, would have no idea what, how rigor mortis would work? Like, have you ever seen some of the actual paintings from the middle ages? Like pretty oppressive paintings. Like, you know, realistic. So yeah, but, but you're right. Total lack of imagination there. And just, but that's a, that's a fallacious statement too. So 
Um, now he gets into like the documented history of like the cloth itself. Um, so let's hear what he has to say here. All right. So where's the shroud been? Obviously in Jerusalem. That's where it starts. We think obviously it's been in Jerusalem because otherwise. Well, so, <laughs> so at this point, he's basically assuming the shroud is authentic and like going from there. Okay, After the sure. uh, Roman war with the, uh, with the people there in 70 AD, it was whisked out of town for safekeeping to Odessa, Turkey, which is now Urfa, U-R-F-A, uh, and was there from 70 to 944. Now, there's a lot of reasons we're going to explain why, but nobody was taking pictures and proving it, and it wasn't shown to the public. So why would the, the apostles take a, a, an endearing, relic of Jesus's crucifixion and show it to the public. Somebody would destroy it, somebody would steal it. So it was in secret until about 500, 600 when artists would come in. It was under the control of the kings and artists would come in and draw pictures of it. So you're gonna see the pictures. All right, so we have that. We have information that it was in Constantinople. I'll prove that. It's that time frame, right around 500. And you can see the image of Christ with a long nose, a long all right, so what he gets into, he's proving this, but what he gets into here now, he's actually po uh, putting up pictures of icons. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, but icons were basically paintings of, or mosaics of Jesus or other, you know, saints, uh, holy figures in the Christian tradition that were venerated. So somebody would paint a picture of Jesus and then they would venerate that picture as if, you know, it was Jesus himself. And so he's arguing here that because these icons and these pictures and mosaics that we have of Jesus match closely to what the depiction of the shroud's face looks like? I don't... Well, so specifically what he's arguing is that if you look before 525, they look this way, and he shows two pictures that look kind of like vague and beardless, yeah. For uh, and those are two pictures of beardless Jesuses. And then right after 525, you've got the bearded, long-haired, hippie Jesus like everyone's used to, the kind of the longish face. And he's saying, look how close these look to the shroud. And that is evidence, he says, that the shroud was shown to the public at this time because that is the only possible explanation for these paintings being of a bearded brownish man yeah, in it, 500 it, it, it had nothing to do with the fact that maybe beards were just in fashion at that point in history. Um, or, yeah. <laughs> what he said, he's about to say something awesome though. Yeah hair of the beard changes from the pre-525 when the shroud wasn't an exhibition. So all the years before, the public thought Jesus was a young guy, no beard, no mustache, clean shaven. All of a sudden at 525, 550 AD, these things appear. So we think they appear because the king at the time said, we're going to have exhibitions. Now, we're going to talk about this one because this is a 550 AD painting it has almost exact duplicate measurements, what's called points of congruence from the shroud face. So they show up because the king showed it off to the people. So if I was, if I'm going to dig into this claim, first of all, I'd want to check, is the iconography completely consistent across all cultures, basically, was, was, was kind of asserting before 525, and then suddenly, without any other kind of transition, and out of step with the other artwork of the time, shift to this other type of style of iconography. 
And is it only explicable by this change? And also, just kind of like a smell check, this shroud supposedly is kept by some king, he hasn't said who, in Odessa, and is shown off presumably in Odessa. Does did they like get on ancient Twitter and immediately show this this picture to like people like where is this iconography changing? He's not saying the some of the pictures showed from Italy, some from elsewhere. Is there a progression? Like if you really wanted to say that the reason that these things have changed was because of a showcase in Odessa, I I just kind of spitballing here, but things that I would expect to see would be okay. They change in Odessa. And then that change radiates outwards as the story is carried away. You That's know? what you would expect, right? Um, and I'd expect over time, the if it is believed and if it was showcased, over time the iconography would shift, but not immediately and maybe not pervasively. The, uh, I can I can be wrong here. I think the one that he's pointing up right now um, is actually a, from Eastern Europe, potentially uh, Russian. Uh, origin or whatever that part of Europe was at the time. I, I could be wrong. Um, so I don't even know if that makes sense to with the Odessa, but let's see what it, this is. The points of congruence is really weird. All right. So what is a point of congruence? So if you measure distance on the painting between eye, pupil to pupil, if you measure length of nose, if you measure lip to tip of nose, width of mouth, and you put the shroud right on top of it, it's exactly the same measurement. So nobody painted this picture out of his brain, out of his memory, out of his creation. He was looking at the shroud, and he was one heck of an exact painter. So if we're not going into this looking to convince ourselves, already assuming it's true, just leaving aside everything else we said, Leaving aside everything else, what is one other possible explanation other than the shroud came first and a guy painted this painting later? What's one other possible explanation Ooh, for I why know. they look so close? I know. Jared, I know. in the back. Uh, okay. Maybe the guy who faked the shroud was copying this painting that came first. There you go. Maybe the causation's the other way. I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying the guy who made the shroud had ever even heard of this painting. I'm just saying you can't say, oh, these two things look very similar. Therefore, this one was first. You don't know that, that you'd have to demonstrate that. You can't, right. this, this isn't evidence. This, this is at most tenuous evidence that one, that the painter or the creator of one thing was aware of the other thing. It doesn't tell you anything about which one came first. The other thing it doesn't tell you is that the dude rose from the dead, right? Yeah. Okay. That also that, but uh, like, like real talk, like let's say, let's say you did find out that the guy who made this painting in 550 was, uh, was looking at the shroud. All that could possibly tell you is that the shroud was there in 550. Yeah. They which is, made, they could have made it let in me, 549. <laughs> let me do some math, uh, about 500 years after Jesus died, you know? So yeah. I don't know. It, it's not very good evidence. All right. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. Um, but so, what he, he like said, basically, they're just super familiar. This one, this is one of my favorite parts of the whole video, though. All right. Let me back up a little bit. Here we go. Time in Constantinople. Not Istanbul. <laughs> not Istanbul. Everybody in your city. Good song. But then Constantinople became the owners of the shroud. 
944 to 1204. Now, why do we think it's in Constantinople? Because there's a painting. And Bridget and I, when we went to uh, Budapest, saw this painting. So in this painting, it dates to 1196, the time it was in Constantinople, the shroud, and it has details that are just impossible for a human to come up with. The painter didn't come up with this. It's because he's looking at the details of the shroud. But let's go over it. So here we have Good Friday. The body's being anointed incorrectly. I don't think they did it on Good Friday. Father Stephen can help me with that, but I kind of think it, they were a little late, so they didn't do it. But anyway, that's the painting. And then Easter Sunday, there's no body. The shroud's there, and the women come to, I guess, anoint him again. But he's not there, all right? Wait so it's very it. strange that this is exactly the, the right thing that the shroud shows. So let me show you the crazy findings that didn't happen by accident. So why did this painter decide to draw Jesus' hands with no thumbs? Because the shroud of Turin has no thumbs. The image of his thumbs are missing. I'm going to explain what happened, all right? We also have, he's nude again. Maybe the guy just wasn't good at drawing thumbs. Like, <laughs> he's, not, he's not good at drawing a breast either because... <laughs> he doesn't look very good at drawing fingers, to be honest. So. <laughs> I, I wish the people like, listening to this podcast could see the picture. You need to go look at this picture because there's a picture of a dude like pouring oil um, on the body and his thumb looks dumb as hell. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but the guy. Not, yeah, yeah. The other thing is, the guy pouring oil doesn't have thumbs on his other hand. So, like, uh, yeah, I guess the shroud of turn didn't have that good dude's thumbs either. I guess I don't know. Uh, yeah, but continue. This he's about to say my favorite part. Oh my yeah. god! So why did he do that? The arms are crossed the same. The long hair is there. Now he messed up on the beard. You can you can fight me on that one. Oh no. my god! That oh my god! He just spent. So we skipped a lot of it. He just spent like the last 10 minutes yeah. talking about how yeah. after 525, you know for a fact they were looking at the thing because he has a beard Because he has a beard, right. Because he has a beard. He says that so many freaking times. Look how perfect it is. And this one is supposed to be the guy looking. It's like, now he doesn't have a beard. Pump the effing brakes. <laughs> I, what the heck do you mean this guy doesn't have it? Pick a lane, man. Like, is the beard definitive proof or is it not? Right, if this dude like, is looking, so the, what his assertion is, is that this this is evidence that this guy is looking at the shroud and that is the only way you could possibly get a painting like this and he doesn't have a beard? Give me a break. Like, <laughs> It's pretty blatant too. Like in just how fast he bypassed it right he's like oh he messed up on that one but the other stuff is good you know it's like he got all this other details right and the assertion that there is no way no way a human being could possibly get any of this stuff right there's no way a human being would possibly draw jesus with his arms crossed unless they were looking at the shroud maybe like, really maybe back when this was painted they didn't like drawing pictures of tallywhackers. I mean, so they if, had to put their look, arms in front of it. Like his arms are crossed right in front of his junk. Yeah. Like it's a modesty I, I, thing. I like you. And again, this dude, this is the guy who just minutes ago was leaning on the fact that people wouldn't want to see a new Jesus. And that was evidence that this had to be authentic. And now he can't, it can't even enter his head that someone may not want to see Jesus's dong. 
Like, right. yeah, and not to mention that he's got a big yellow arrow with the nude word on it, pointing at like his bum, like yeah, nude. I, it, and again, again, I don't know for a fact. This is like if I was watching this for the first time, I don't know for a fact that this is. I, I'm not an expert in medieval art. I'd want to look into that. But the, these assertions he's just throwing out there with no backward uh, backing evidence at all, right? So we're putting our skeptical hat on. These would be things that are going into the box of we need to check on this, right? Like, yeah, we we need to get some. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe every other artist on in Europe in 1196 was all about them thumbs, and like they were just thumbs, thumbs, thumbs everywhere. And like this is the one guy who didn't draw thumbs. I don't know, but <laughs> but he messed up on the beard. But we'll give him a pass on that, <laughs> right? Now you go to the second half of the painting on the lower side. The mathematics of this being a fake is astronomical. This is a herringbone weave, but look at the four burn holes that the man put in the drawing. L-shaped four circles. How come it matches the shroud L-shaped four circles so perfectly? How did he invent that out of the clear blue sky? How did he invent no thumb? All right. How did he invent no thumb, Jared? Why, why you no thumb? <laughs> Why you know thumb? Yeah, exactly. Well, first of all, the L's going the wrong direction. So if he was getting into like mathematical perfection, he he fucked that up. So <laughs> hey, look, this guy. I mean, he messed up the beard. He had, he had a beer. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, uh, you want me to skip ahead here a little bit? Um, yeah, yeah. All right. Why you know thumb? Why you know thumb? All right. Um, so first, first of all, to... yeah. Eighteen ninety-eight. We, we're going way ahead in the, into the future now. The first, uh, the first photographs. Where, where, all right, here we go. Good old days, took your picture on film and took it to the pharmacy and got it developed. Your picture came back, you dark, in the background light. Then you would get a print and you would then be light and the background would be dark. So this is a photographic negative and this is a photographic positive. So let's go over to the medieval forger. To get all this right and to create the image on the shroud as a photographic negative, Knowing that in 1898 we would know how to do a photographic positive, he did this in the year 1200 when there was no photography. That's called a leap of faith. So this so, is the original. No, 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 never mind. I'll, I'll, I'll say mine in a second. Yeah. Yeah. Photographing negative face of the man of the shroud. He is dark because the image is, quote unquote, for now, burned on. Background, nothing. So this is a positive image, but because it's re reversed, it acts like a negative. So when you go to the dark room and you put a negative of a negative, you get a positive. You get a human face. And that's what they got. Okay. So, this so it is dramatic. It does look very much like a person's face when you do whatever manipulations they've done. But his assertion here is the only conceivable explanation for a forger making the certain parts light and certain parts dark such that when you reverse the image, it looks nice or something. The only possible explanation is that he predicted the future of photography. It doesn't even make sense. Like it's complete. I, I don't get it, man. Like, like it's such, it's such a leap that like, like this is a rocket assisted jump that he's making. Like I, 
how how do you even get there? Well, I know how you get there. You start there. Um, I, I guess that's true. If you already have the, the landing zone picked out, then you know, yeah. that's where you're going to land. Yeah, it, it's so tenuous. It's it's so it, it these are all ap- appeals to incredulity. Basically, exactly, yep. he hasn't he hasn't demonstrated anything. He hasn't shown that I don't know. Like this kind of method is more difficult to do, or. I don't know. It's completely unheard of at the time. I don't know. I, like anything, anything at all to substantiate this claim other than, man, why you no thumb, you know? <laughs> yeah. And the other thing too about this photo, negative, positive thing, like this really isn't a negative and a positive, uh, not in the, the true sense of like photography. What we have here is we're just taking the lights and making them dark and we see a highly contrast image at this point. But it's not like there wasn't a face on the actual shroud. The reason everybody venerated the shroud is because you could see the face. It's not like we right. turned it into a negative. Oh my gosh, that's the face of Jesus. Like face popped out of nowhere. Like yeah. <laughs> it looked like nothing. And then boom, you do a negative and boom, there's a face. Oh my God. Like, you know. yeah, it's always been there. So um, let's see what else. You should to make you quite thing. impressed compared to the one before. So this happened in 1898 and went all through the newspapers of the world, you can see teeth, mustache, lack of ears. Oh, he had no thumbs. Lack of thumbs. Oh, he has no cheeks. Hmm, the medieval painter, he forgot a lot. There's blood in his hair. So hair bleeds, that's interesting. All right, so I hate to be so sarcastic, but this is not. I can't imagine any other way to get blood in your hair. (laughs) Right. Yep, Uh, the hair must be bleeding. I'm going to lose my mind over here. <laughs> oh my gosh, dude. I mean, I don't know. So if you have really long hair and you've got blood all over your head because you've been pierced by a crown of thorns and that blood's kind of like smearing on a thing, some of that sh- stuff's going to get in your, oh my God. Like, th- <laughs> Yeah. No, but his, his hair is bleeding, Jordan. It, it makes more sense, okay, if you don't think about well, it, all right? obviously that's the <laughs> only thing is for some crazy reason, the medieval... Uh, guy forgot thumbs and made the hair bleed or whatever. <laughs> Fake. So here we go, medieval fraud, 1290, before photography, photographic negative, photographic positive. All right, then in 1931, the camera gets better, and now you have tremendous detail. Now you can see real clear, except it's too far away, the no ears and no cheeks, blood in the hair, you can see he died with an expansion of chest. He took a breath in and his heart stopped beating and he didn't breathe out. You can see the right-sided wound where the spear went in. You can see a bloated abdomen of a person who's breathing hard and swallowing air. You can see the nail in the wrist, not in the palm, but in the wrist. So physicians and everybody that has any knowledge of anatomy knows you can hang 90 pounds on one palm of hand nail. All right, first of all, this has nothing to do with whether or not well, I mean, it does in a way, but if if it were in the palm, that would be compelling evidence that it was false because we know that's not how a person would be crucified, right? True. So, but again, he's asserting that the only possible explanation for this is that this is real because no medieval artist could possibly come up with the idea that a nail went through the wrist because they would have put it in the palm, I guess. I, 
Yeah. I mean, are there no examples of any other arts being done in the medieval time period of nails on the wrist versus the palms? I mean, I, I don't know, but I'd, I'd want to look at that. Yeah. yeah. That'd be another thing for us to check. And also there's no ears. I mean, it would, I, if you're looking at the picture, it'd be really awkward to put ears in there anyway. I don't think you'd see ears from that angle if you were just looking at a guy. Yeah, I mean, so. if, imagine if a guy's laying down and his long hair, like somebody, let's just assume there was somebody buried here, like this was a real person, right? Uh, they obviously took painstaking things for reverence for the body because they crossed his arms. Have you ever seen, like, they don't just like have his hair all wild and stuff. They probably, you know, combed his hair to make him look somewhat nice, got the little freckles out of his beard and stuff. Like, um, anyways, <clears throat> the ears would have been covered up. Along with the thumbs, they would have cut those off and sold them on the black market. But yeah, and ninety pounds on the other palm of the hand nail. It has to go through the wrist, or it won't support the body. So the shroud backs that up. The evidence says the nail was in the wrist, because that's where the position is. All right. In the wrist. This is Great. the back. You can see that his hair is a natural style ponytail of the time, of the Jewish people of the time. Scalp blood, not necessarily just on a crown, but all over his scalp. So the crown of thorns was really kind of a cap of thorns. I'll show you some depictions of that. You can see the burn marks again. You can see uh, the blood and water. Now remember, since he's lying on his back, He's, this is gravity pulling blood out of the right side of his chest mixed with fluid, plural fluid, which is like water. And now it's flowing evenly across the shroud as it pours out. Basically, he's just droning on about all of the things that make this a high quality painting or whatever a piece of artwork. And, and asserting it would be impossible for it to be something. Yeah, oh, yeah. Asserting it's impossible that a person could make it up, which is just right. ridiculous. But where's the, where's the science that he promised us? That's what I want to know. So let's see what we got see here. See if we can find it. 32 U.S. scientists. America forms a team. There you go, Pope Paul VI. Got permission to do the team. And all these scientists from Los Alamos, Lockheed, IBM, Jet Propulsion Lab, all these people, about 32 of them, got together and flew to, to Turin, Italy for five days and studied the shroud and put their hands on it and did everything. They did all these... Uh, um, uh, specialties were nuclear Jordan. physics, uh, nuclear chemistry, physics. radiology, <laughs> botany, history, textiles, medicine, mathematics, archaeology, forensic pathology, photography, and geology. They did, sure they did nuclear in. physics and geology and botany on the shroud. On the shroud. <clears throat> uh, I mean, I guess the botany because like the pollen thing. Yeah. And the nuclear physics is going to make sense, I think. Not sure where geology kicks in. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a geologist. I don't know how many geologists. Some geologists are like, what are you talking about? Like, There's no thumbs. <laughs> what a geological find. By that group of 32. All right, let's talk about their beliefs. 38 were smart aleck scientists, agnostics. Some of them, a couple were atheists. Two were believers in Christianity. Three were raised Catholic. 34 raised Protestant. Three raised Jewish. Jewish. Jewish on this little scientific trail. And they all arrived thinking the shroud's a fake. They were just there to prove it, have a little fun in Italy, and that's it. All right? They all left, as honest scientists would say, I don't know if that's Jesus, but it's not a fake. All right. So this is, all right. First of all, I guess it's important to kind of understand the people who were involved in this 
you know, examining and doing experiments on it, right? Well, it's it's important because if you have a hostile source that agrees with the claim, that's more unlikely if the claim is, is false, right? So, like, if if you have someone who's if they have a bias, is biased against it, and they're convinced, that right. can be more convincing, perhaps. So it's not completely ridiculous that he would bring this up. It is a little silly the way he talked about it, but it's yeah. not completely absurd. Um, I am skeptical that all 40 have agreed that it's not a fake. I'd want to see some evidence, but maybe yeah. he'll get into it. Probably not. I can't explain how that image got there. And they have a long treatise on all their findings, and there's no explanation they can give other than heat, oxidation, light, and all that. What you're going to see. This is the group, and that's Dr. Jackson. This is when they first had the ability to uh, see the shroud and touch it. This is some of the equipment they had. All right, and this is where the pollen came in. So when they took samples on slides, they finally got back to America. So I was just going to tell you, this is what got me interested. Three types were only found in Israel, 14 in the Middle East, 58 in other parts. And of course, this was faked by somebody 376 years before they invented a microscope. What? What possible? Um, talk about false dichotomies. Like, what explanation could there possibly be? Assuming all of that is true, is it more likely that the guy who forged it faked? Like, what is he thinking? Like, made in a lab, like with alchemy, made up some pollen? You know, he's like, like he's like, hey, Martha, do you got any more of that pollen left over from when we were in Jerusalem? Yeah, <laughs> like, like, if all this is true. As presented, the only thing he's got three types found in Israel, 14 types only found in the Middle East, 58 types common in Istanbul, Turkey, and France. It seems to me, and this is the sort of thing I'd want to see in these peer reviewed papers that he's going to go on about. The only thing that would demonstrate is that the shroud was in Israel, the Middle East, and Istanbul, and Turkey. Like, okay. Yeah. There's lots of stuff that was in Israel, then the Middle in the Middle East and France. The Crusades and, happened, for instance. Yeah, you know? it makes sense, too, because a lot of these icons or these um, relics were trotted through during the Holy Crusades as, like, ways to, like, inspire the troops to, you know, fight and stuff. So Yeah, so it's not – if you told me that the Shroud has been in these places, that doesn't tell me that it's not well, – now, if somehow – just spitballing – if somehow you – these types of pollen – uh, were extinct and somehow we knew that they were extinct after whatever date and so the only way they could have gotten is not only have been in the area but been in that area at this specific time yeah if, yeah if, that's true if there was some way to determine that the there was pollen on this thing from you know jerusalem pre-70 and after pre-70 this pollen doesn't exist anywhere else in the world and it only existed there well that doesn't that, even tell us that though because the pollen could have got put on there some other way Right. It it would make it it would definitely lend credence to the idea that this shroud was there before the year seventy. It that that would at least be good evidence in the column of it was in Jerusalem at the right time. Right. That would at least be relevant, right? All this is telling me is, is yeah. it was in Israel at some point, which I guess is better than nothing. I mean, it having been in Israel at some point as history is good, I guess. But, but yeah. what bothers me is the fact that he, he jumps to, well, it couldn't be a conspiracy because somebody couldn't make this up. Like, no, there's a lot of other possibilities. And he's just like, it's either the actual Shroud of Jesus that was in there or 
somebody had a microscope 376 years before they invented microscopes and knew how to put pollen on the shroud to, to make it look that way. That's ridiculous. Uh, that's, uh, so is there a spot here you wanted to jump to? Um, uh, let's look at the chemistry portion here. Sure. This is what we know in 1978-2007. So here's Dr. Jackson looking with a spectroscopy. A spectroscopy is a microscope that analyzes reflected light. So when you reflect light or aim light at something, and it comes back at a certain color of the prism, you can identify which uh, element of the periodic table it is. So they aim the light at the image of the shroud, and that's what a, came back is, that's linen. That's a tolerable explanation of spectroscopy, I suppose. <laughs> I'll, I'll allow it. He's not a physicist. Fine. Objection, Your Honor. <laughs> close, close enough, I guess. Sustained. <laughs> not paint, not dye, not pencil. No crayon, nothing. It's linen. All right. So, all right. So this is the point where they start to get into the science and start presenting some scientific evidence. Uh, their claim is that the shroud itself is literally just a shroud of linen. There's no evidence of there being any paint molecules. There's no evidence of there being any other kind of things. It's just linen. And so what they're saying is, we don't know what it is, uh, but it's not paint or it's not some pigments, right? Which all of that is good information. Like that's all, all good. That at least cuts down on the possible space where a forger could work in. Correct. So that's all relevant. The bad part is when he goes, therefore it must've been a miracle, right? Like, right? Which we'll get to. That was a great beginning because it identified there's nothing in the image but the cloth. And this is a microscopic close-up of individual fibers with no paint, that's blood, no paint on them, and fibrils that make up a fire, fiber. Wait, wait a minute. This is under visible microscope. I, it's possible that I'm just not understanding. I'm not a linen expert, but he just said there's nothing but linen, and then said, blood. here's a close-up, that's blood, which, I mean, maybe there's a, there's a step I'm missing. This is one of those things I'd put in the box that I'd want to look into later. Was there actually blood on this linen? Because that is not paint, but it certainly could be a pigment that somebody could like get, you know, yeah. or I don't know. Here's something you might do is paint with blood. Like, yeah. So, so I don't know, maybe I'm misunderstanding what he's saying, but that would be something I'd put in the bucket. Yeah. To check. That'd be definitely later. something. Yeah. This is an x-ray shooting through the image of the man. And the x-ray is not stopped by anything but the blood. So the image on the shroud doesn't have anything in it that stops an x-ray except blood. Okay. Okay. So that seems more, more explicit. It sounds like he is saying that the shroud doesn't have pain or anything, but it does have blood. Cool. Like that's good. Now that that's nudging me away from the miracle category, because now we've identified a thing that can stain cloth blood. Right. I think what, I think what they're claiming, though, is that the areas that depict blood on the shroud are the only areas that block the x-ray okay. from going through. So there's blood, but it's only the areas that are right. supposed to be there's blood no, of the painting. Yeah, there's okay. no blood where like the face and all that stuff is revealed. Got it. Okay. So. That makes sense. Okay, cool. That's all relevant. 3D, finally explained in 2007. All right, hang in with this. Here's the body lying down. There's the lower cloth. There's the upper cloth. So the cloth is touching his toe, touching his knee, touching his hand, touching his chest. But there's gaps here 
because it's kind of tight on the top, where there's not touching. All right, first of all, um, so what, what? if you're listening to this, what they have is a picture of a drawn image of a figure and then showing an image of side the, view. the side view of a shroud going over the top. And they're pointing out that there's areas where the shroud isn't touching the body. First of all, how do you know that? Second of all, how do you know that? Like, <laughs> Well, and and even if it's true, like, so what? Yeah. Uh, continue, though. Yeah. I think he's about to say, so what? Of course, it's touching along most of the bottom. So we have image creation where there is no touching. So what can do that? Can gases leak out of a deteriorating body? Do they go in a perfect perpendicular line or do they just spread out like a mist? No. All right, so he, this is confirming what I thought that they were saying. So they're saying that this is, a, this is exactly how the cloth was laid on Jesus. And because this is how the cloth was laid on Jesus, the parts where there's gaps in the cloth aren't touching skin and therefore they wouldn't have imprinted an image onto the skin. The only way that this could have been done is from a supernatural cause at the moment of resurrection. And that's why they have the full image of the body on the cloth, which is ridiculous. Uh, I mean, I don't, I hopefully I don't need to explain to people why that's ridiculous. Um, but gases don't do that. The only thing that does that is radiation, some form of light or radiation. All right, so that caused darker, stronger radiation effects or light effects on the areas here, which are darker on the shroud, giving it the 3D quality. So the image formed in areas where there was no contact. And here's the oh, no, he's saying the opposite. Fiber. So the image formed in areas where there is no contact. Correct. Yeah, that's what I was saying. So like, which he's saying that it couldn't, but what they're assuming here, and this is where I think it's fallacious, is they're assuming they know how the cloth was laid on the body. Well, even more than that, not, so he's talking radiation, right? Which first of all, like I said, light is radiation. It's all radiation, but anyway, it's electromagnetic radiation. So if radiation is coming up from the body somehow through whatever, uh, the places where it's in contact are where it's gonna, you're gonna get the most dose because there, there's no space between the thing and the thing you're imprinting it on, right? Like mm -hmm. that all the empty air can do is dilute through, because distance is a way to shield, right? So right. the further away you are from the source, the less dose you're going to get, not just because of the, the distance, the distance itself dilutes the radiation, but also possibly some effects, depending on what type of radiation you're getting. If it's like gamma rays, air is not going to block it at all. Certainly not that like a couple inches, that's not going to do anything. But if it's like a beta particle or an alpha particle, um, it won't be completely shielded, but it is somewhat shielded by that level, that air, right? So you would get, you would expect to have less radiation make it from the places with no contact, I would think. Right, I guess the one thing I would ask and one thing I'd want to look up as part of this claim examination is, is there anything that can enable a body to radiate or do we have any examples of radiation emanating off of a body that could make this kind of image? Like, I don't know. that. Well, clear. he's, I think he, he's going to get into that later, though okay. I will say that we're all radioactive. So not radioactive, like burning sheets radioactive, but. <laughs> well, it depends on what, what you've been doing. So I guess, but. <laughs> and that's where the image resides, only on the very top surface, 1%. 
It didn't even have the power to go through the entire thread. Of course, it didn't burn the shroud to death. It just fringed it in, in a pixelated fashion. 5.5 billion pixelations make that picture. Okay, so look. So he's got an image of like if you sliced a fiber crossways, Cross like have all the little mini fibers inside, and he's saying that the image it's only doesn't penetrate the full fiber. So unless the I don't know, he hasn't said what type of radiation is supposedly making this image. I don't know, but what you'd expect, unless that first, unless the radiation is such that you'd expect it to be fully a hundred percent shielded by that first layer like that 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 stuff is so good at shielding whatever type of radiation it is that's all you get you'd expect some kind of penetration pattern with darker right up the top and lighter as you yeah, go down like a as some some yeah. stuff is going to penetrate just stochastically so um either this is this linen is so amazingly radiation absorbent that you know you're getting virtually no dose beyond the first layer or it's wrong <laughs> <laughs> or, or it's not so yeah um, and it scrapes right off with a razor so what is it dehydrated flax dehydrated cellulose and this is the new ena italy Exomer laser almost completely duplicating in 2012 the same effect of the shroud those are the pulses and the timing, and they created an image on linen that's the same depth as the shroud, an eczema laser. Okay, so, so that would be an the example summary. there of radiation being absorbed very, uh, very effectively like a, like by the a, first top layer. Yeah. So that's what, I'm, like, because all light is radiation. So it's if if that's the case, if it did in fact use a laser, then that would be what I'm saying. Like, unless it's the unless from this type of radiation, you'd expect it to be permanently shielded. Which what that basically does is it narrows down your possible candidates for what type and energy of dose you're getting. Right. So we're about to get into what this Sterk team uh, decided or did not decide based on all of the the science that they performed yeah. on the is what is the image not not a painting not a drawing not a rubbing not a scorching not a photograph not a bleaching all right now what about the bible what that's it that's it's not those but what about the bible jordan is that good evidence for the shroud i don't know what's the bible got to say about thumbs i think it's for against it <laughs> did the bible say that jesus had thumbs <laughs> Did the Bible say that Jesus had a ponytail? Don't know. It agrees with the Bible really well. So we're going to talk about the passion, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Scourging, crowning, nailing. Start right out. Sounds like a good Friday night. <laughs> right? Uh... <laughs> all right. I don't think we need to get into this because all, so, all, all this is, is saying is like the image of the shroud is consistent with what the the passion is depicted in the what old. possible explanation could there be for the shroud which be it, matching the the gospel story what possible explanation could there be aside from it being authentically the shroud that jesus was buried in i mean just off the top of my head is pitfall on here possibly that they were trying to make something that resembled and was accurate to the story I, yeah like 
whenever, whether it was made in 500 or 1400 or, or whenever, 2024 <laughs> or yeah, whenever this thing was made, whoever, if, if the other side is correct, if the hypothesis you're trying to disprove or whatever that was saying, if that's correct, then the person who did this thing has the Bible in his hands. He he's making a picture of Jesus. Cause, cause the Bible, like he already knows these stories, how like, it's not, that crazy to think that he would make a picture that matches the stories he knows. Right. Also, there's the same thing that happens with prophecies in the old Testament, and the new Testament. Exactly. Yeah. You have a person writing a story, writing a, the new Testament with the old Testament in their hands. And so they match. Wow. Is that crazy? No, it's not crazy because they had the old source. In fact, this is exactly the argument he made earlier regarding the the paintings, Mm -hmm. right? He was saying, oh man, they match exactly. The only way this could possibly be true is if the person had the the shroud in front of them to copy. But now suddenly, if they match, (laughs) it can't possibly be because the guy had the thing in front of him. Now it has to be because it's it's real. Like pick a lane. I'm glad you pointed that out because that's pretty telling too. Like there's not much consistency with his his methods here, right? He's just selecting the method that best aligns with what he's already, and he stated this at the beginning, what he already believed, right? So, um, I, I don't think we need to go into no. all of this stuff. It matches so. the, the, whatever made the shroud match the Bible story. All right. So this is why it happened. And the scientists were all, you know, know it all smart Alex. And they said, Oh, those crazy lunatic people. They're always driving me crazy. All their ideas don't make any sense. One day, one of the lunatics, Sue Benford and her husband, Joe Marino, proved the carbon dating was a fiasco. Here's how it happened. First of all, she's a nurse. She's not a physicist. He is a, a Shroud fan, but I think he actually was uh, some kind of religious order before. I think- I, I'm slipping me tonight. I'm getting too old. I think you might have skipped the carbon dating intro, possibly. That's important. Yeah, let me go back here. Oh, here we go. It just jumps so fast. So if you look hard enough, and if you have time, you look on the, on the computer, you can see a little darkness in the shape of a thumb that's in the middle of the hand. I thought there weren't any thumbs. So that's why it has no thumbs. Now there's thumbs again? (laughs) All right. What's up with this guy in thumbs? (laughs) But between 1978 and 88, there was over 100 facts, scientific journals, and they all point to no no medieval forger did this. So everybody's very happy. Oh, boy, this is wonderful. That right right there, that that this is a prime candidate for the kind of thing. He doesn't give any of these. He just says there's 100 facts published in scientific journals. You know, the journals. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Somewhere in this decade, there were a hundred facts in the journals. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I, I get this is a, a PowerPoint to like a church, so you're not gonna like go through every one. But come on, man, throw us a bunch. Throw one paper, one. Yeah, I mean, even we like to throw up an Al every once in a while just to kind of get it going. So yeah, that Al, that Al guy gets around. Uh, yeah. So this is again the kind of thing. Like, if there's actually, so if there is actually. Joking aside, actually peer-reviewed papers published by people who examined the shroud—that is, 
a hundred percent the kind of thing you want to see. That's the kind of thing you want to examine. When I w- when I would go to look at these, I would try to find the papers and I would read past the abstract to see if the papers say what he says they say. Because yep. what he's claimed earlier that they say is this is not fake. There's no way it could be faked. And that's the claim, and that's what he said they said. Do they actually say that? Um, just as an aside, I haven't mentioned this source before, but it's valuable. So if you're looking for a paper and you find you can read the abstract, but you can't get past the paywall, you have to pay some like 20 bucks or something to um, get to the paper. You could do that. You can request sometimes for the author to give you the paper. Sometimes they will if you just ask. But what you should definitely never do, do not ever go to SciHub, that's S-C-I hyphen H-U-B dot H-K-V-I-S-A dot net. Now, you might, if you might, if you were to look for this, which you shouldn't do, Google SciHub, and you could find the link. Make sure, I'm telling you how to do it so you don't ever do it. What this will let you do is put in the title of a paper or the DOI and nine times out of 10, pull up a paper for free. It's piracy and it's wrong. And do not ever go to sci SCI hyphen hub dot stuff. Don't, don't do it. I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding if you're telling me not to go or should I go? I don't know. <laughs> I would never endorse piracy. In the name of science, Jordan. <laughs> But yes, I, yeah. There are ways to find the to get around paywalls. Um, if you actually, uh, serious note though, if you're a member of your local library or if you have a major, you know, state-funded university near you, uh, nine times out of ten, you can actually go to the library, get on their computer, and just ask one of the librarians, and they probably have access to all these scientific journals on the computers at the organization that you can get on and print and get them legally through that for educational purposes. So there, there are ways to get them. Librarians are stoked to help you get knowledge. It's kind of their thing. Oh my gosh. I used to love going to just picking a random topic. Like, Hey, I'm interested in uh, Billy the Kid. And they're like, oh, let me take you to the Western section. Like, Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, all right. But back to, back to the Shroud, because that's what we're talking about today. So. Until Pope John Paul II got courage to say, okay, do carbon dating. It's okay. I'm fine. No problem. So they do carbon dating, and of course, Jesus doesn't make everything simple. So he throws science, which you're going to see didn't work out to be real science. He throws the science of carbon dating at us just to cause us a little stress when we were so happy. So the carbon Jesus dating comes like back, and these are three people at three different <laughs> carbon dating labs. That shroud came out of the ground in 1260 to 1390. That linen was made out of uh, flax in those years, according to carbon dating. All right? Now you're going to see why I'm standing here, because it's wrong. All right. But when it came out... Now, I'm sure he's about to tell us it's wrong because they then did, they found that the procedure of the lab was wrong. And then they went and took more samples and did carbon dating with better controls and a variety of labs. And new carbon dating results showed that portions of the shroud were old. Because you could have portions of a thing that are new and portions that are old. And it, like it's some parts of it are as old as the oldest piece, right? Um, right. Now, even if the, the, the linen is like 
from AD or eight, sorry, CE 100. That doesn't necessarily prove that the thing was made in CE 100. It's made with ancient materials, but that would at least, you know, if the whole darn thing didn't grow until 1300, well, it definitely was made after 1300, right? Yeah. But I'm sure what he's about to show us is a bunch of additional C14 measurements that substantiate his point. You would think so, right? I, I, let's give him the benefit of doubt. Let's see. Uh, all the big scientists of the world quit doing research for 13 years. In anything. But the human beings called faithful <laughs> Christians wouldn't give it up. So they kept calling all the scientists, and they used to have a thing called mail with a stamp, and writing letters and saying, this is why it happened, this is why it happened, this is why it happened. And the scientists were all, you know, know-it-all, smart Alex, and they said, oh, those crazy lunatic people, they're always they're driving me crazy. All their ideas don't make any sense. I would just you know, like to say this has nothing to do with like his evidence he's presenting, but he thinks he's funny. But if you notice, the audience hasn't laughed once at any of his jokes. <laughs> it's true. Uh, you know, if I'm trying to find out a flaw in some scientific research like carbon dating, you know what I do? I read random letters sent to me from non-experts just out of the blue. That's how I get my data. You should keep doing that. It's a good method. I, it, <laughs> if you can't trust a random person who wrote you a letter unannounced out of the blue, then who can you trust? Yeah, but they had stamps, Jordan. <laughs> there you go. One day, one of the lunatics, Sue Benford and her husband, Joe Marino, proved the carbon dating was a fiasco. Here's how it happened. First of all, she's a nurse. She's not a physicist. He is a, a Shroud fan, but I think he actually was uh, some kind of religious order before. I, it's slipping me tonight. I'm getting too old. All right. So anyway, this theory they developed in 2001. Here's why. She got a copy of the original sample for carbon dating. She got a copy of the picture. And she looked under the microscope for this, uh, not the microscope. She looked on the screen of the computer for days and days and days. And all of a sudden, it struck her that if she drew a line here, this half looks different than this half. So she had the idea that this half was linen, more perfect woven material, and this half was cotton. That was her idea. It was published in Chemistry Today in 2008. So there so he at least, theory, if you go back a second, he gives half a citation there. Uh, he says, she's published in Chemistry Today, and it says on the screen, volume 22, July 2008. It doesn't give a title, but Sue Benford yeah. with that stuff would probably be enough to find it. You could definitely find that. Yeah. Or if it existed. Yeah. I so. do think it's entertaining, not just in this guy's video, but all the time, that they say, oh, these people aren't experts, as if that's a good thing. Like, that's, that's a reason why we should trust them. I don't understand why. Well, I understand why, psychologically. Right. Because it's like the story of the the underdog fighting the evil smart Alex scientist. But like if you're trying to convince me, a skeptic, that this guy's theory is correct, it's not if you're like, oh, this guy overturned all of physics. Oh, where did he study physics? Oh, he's he was a mailman. Like it doesn't mean he's wrong. He could be right, but like that doesn't instill me with a ton of confidence, you know? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The other thing, too, is pointing out, he's obviously capable of putting out citations up on the screen. Like, he's not afraid to do it. So <laughs> This one, anyway. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's, so, see what, uh, let's see what our actual theory was. Yeah. So she had the idea that this half was linen, 
more perfect woven material, and this half was cotton. That was her idea. It was published in Chemistry Today in 2008. So her theory then is based on international protocol of the carbon dating, which took place. Here's what she proved and brought out for everyone to know. The carbon dating itself, when it was done, was a travesty because STERP and the United States of America wasn't told it was happening. We weren't invited. All right, editorializing, we were not invited because the Strauss... So America isn't the only place that does carbon dating. Does he not know that? Yeah, and it's not like we're the best carbon daters in the world either. Like, I, I honestly don't know who the best carbon dater in the world is. But I know for a fact you can get carbon dating labs outside of America. Like <laughs> this, yeah, this is a little bit of poisoning the well here, where he's trying to say because Sterp wasn't invited and USA wasn't invited, then obviously it was a travesty. Like because we're the only people who can carbon fourteen date properly or something. I don't know. Ah, uh, whatever. Scientists that live in Turin had their nose out of joint a little bit because America came in and took over all their nice shroud and took over the science. So they got even with us because they did the carbon dating on their own. No STERP, no USA. Now, the agreement of international protocol was they're supposed to take six little tiny, smaller than a postage stamp samples. They all agreed it and sent it to six labs. They didn't do that. They took one sample. They sent it to three labs, it doesn't matter much, but they took one sample. Major mistake. Six samples spread all over the place has almost no chance of being wrong but they took a sample from a bad place. So I'll give him this, like all else being equal, taking a variety of samples from all over the shroud would be better than taking it from one spot. So I don't think he's wrong necessarily that that would have been better if he's correct that that's what they did. They took one sample from one spot. Sure, like if I was designing the protocol, I would also encourage them to take samples from you know a variety of places. Right. Yeah, play uh, Jesus advocate here though. Um, I can understand why they wouldn't do that. If they if they truly believe that this is a holy relic of in proof right. of the resurrection, they're not going to just chop it up and throw it in a blender, right? Like, <laughs> right. I mean, I think they should. You know, we'll get to the bottom of this. But uh, <laughs> now, now, if they try to do that and it like fuses back together, then we might have a story, right? You <laughs> like, know what? I that that'd be pretty convincing to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So here you have the bottom of the body and the hands and the, thing, the shroud goes all the way over here. So over here in the Middle Ages, this was cut out for some reason. So of all the places on the shroud, they took a sample where there was previous damage, previous cutouts, and this, of course, if you're holding the shroud up to show to people, your fingers and the wind blowing are gonna cause the need for some repairs. So their theory then, there was a repair done here, 14, 1500, and the sample was of a repair job. Well, they didn't use linen for repair, they used cotton. That was their theory. So, so next to the repair site, the Turin scientists on their own, one guy on the planet Earth made his own decision on where the sample would be. We won't mention his name. All right, so close up now with a the microscope, there's the line. These are bright, rectangular, beautiful little white cartridges, I would say, of linen. The spaces are small, 
and the white is really impressively nice. Over here is jagged, it's beat up, and the spaces are very large. So you do appreciate that, right? Can you don't tell the difference to between? Me, but yeah, I mean, maybe they just maybe it's just damage from you. I mean, I don't I don't know. I, so I this don't is know. something I would look into. Like if this was like a serious claim and I wanted to, to dive in a little deeper, I would want to actually know like how weavings were done in that time. Like, is this consistent with their weaving patterns? Did you right? Know. Did did they have access to cotton? You know, all that sort of stuff. Like. Uh, it, this kind of claim seems super weird, though. Like, let's say that it is, in fact, that there's two materials here, right? That there's linen and then there's a bit of cotton. Is it, I, I honestly don't know, is it, is that compelling evidence that it was a patch as opposed to them just using two different materials? Like, you ran out of linen and you started using cotton? I, I, don't, I have no idea if that is feasible or not. I, I don't know. But that'd be the kind of thing yeah. I'd look at. And, and even if they did patch it. And we just happened to test a spot that was patched. That still doesn't mean that it's the old. Yeah. Right. Well, so what he's trying to do here is refute a compelling piece of evidence against it being old, right? Right. A piece of it, for sure, 100%, no doubt, no matter what else he says here, because he's complaining that they used the wrong, they just so happened to pick a patched piece, man, isn't that convenient? Uh, but no matter what, a piece of it, for sure, is 13th century, 14th century. Um, so that doesn't tell you necessarily what the rest is, but like now, so if you're looking at this like as a Bayesian sort of thing, right? The odds that they happen to pick one spot and it happened to be a piece with a patch that tested very late to about the time that people were thinking that it was forged anyway, you'd have to believe that that is true and also that the whole rest of the the shroud, like it was bad luck, you know? Right. Like you have, your, this is what happened. In light of that evidence, what's the likelihood that A, it's like this because that they picked a random piece and the whole thing is from about that time. So the random piece they picked is from about that time. Or they picked a random piece. It just so happened to be the one patched piece, but the rest of it's authentic. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's not impossible. It's, 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 not inconceivable that they made a patch and they just so happened at the super bad luck because they didn't pick from more than one spot that they picked the patch and the rest of it is authentic. That could certainly be the case, but this is a, you know, kind of an ad hoc assertion that you're making. We should, ex we should require some evidence to believe this, you know? Yeah. And it's definitely something that we would look into to kind of examine all right, so of course it's this hypothesis because we haven't been able to duplicate a man turning into energy. Okay, so I went to the 2015 Shroud Science Group. I turn into energy every day. I don't know about you, Jordan, but... Parts of me do. Yeah. St. Louis, and I was talking to John Jackson, and then I got back on the plane, and I was looking at two or three different studies and, and, and theories on what happened at the moment of the resurrection to make an image, right? So I was hemming and hawing and hemming and hawing, and all of a sudden on my cell phone, the, the next thing you're gonna see is a picture that answered my question. And I fully believe, with a lighthearted little joke, that Jesus told me which one was right. <laughs> that's me, and that's the head scientist. Who cares about this? And Jesus put a halo over his head. <laughs> Becoming one with a cloth, 
and a clot. So if he stands up at the moment of the resurrection and rips the cloth up, all these things and clots are going to fall apart. They're pristine, unmoved clots. They are perfect rivers. Not one edge is affected. Oh, my God. So the blood is embedded in the fibers. So in order to get a body out of a cloth without messing up the, the exact image of the, of the, of the blood, there's, look how exact that is. That has not been broken by a man ripping off a cloth. And there's the wrist again. Undisturbed, and pristine cloth. What if a person didn't rip off the cloth? Oh my God! I can't even. <laughs> wait, <laughs> wait. What if what if he died and he laid there for a week or three days and then or they took it off? Yeah. What if it was never on a person? I don't know. Like, yeah. What if that happened too? <laughs> All right. Oh. Caught. So, so the shroud has another requirement. Other than non-disturbed blood, it has to change positions. It's wrapping in a circle, but the picture is a flat, it's a flat photographic plate. But the shroud has to go from circle to flat without ripping the blood. Here's what Dr. Jackson thinks. So back to that same picture, the shroud is on the top. Of course, the bottom I didn't bother drawing in, but during the resurrection and whatever number of milliseconds, the shroud falls through the disappearing, dematerializing body. Matter is turning into energy, and energy is doing whatever God wants to do with the energy, or reassemble it. He can reassemble it as the glorified body, of course. But who knows what happened at that moment? But this, yeah, who who knows? I so there's some big leaps being taken here, right? So what he's saying is that, and I think he might even use it later, like E equals MC squared, mass and energy are equivalent, so the, the mass of the body turns into energy, right? Earlier, and I, don't, I think we skipped it, but way early in the talk, he said that the energy of the resurrection couldn't travel four to five inches. When I first saw that, I was like, how in the ever-living heck could you possibly know that? Like, what, what, how... How do you know that? What is the energy of the resurrection? And now here he's talking about like, so there, his model is that Jesus's body underwent a mass to energy conversion. And so the, the, the shroud fell through the body. I don't think this guy appreciates just how much energy is in mass. Like his, his background isn't in physics, but it's a lot, like a lot, a lot. This is why fusion and nuclear fission generates so much energy, because the amount of energy that is locked up in mass is absurd, literally astronomical. So I did a little bit of math. You can do E equals MC squared. It's very simple. M is the rest mass energy. So that's like if you're just sitting still, the mass isn't moving. None of it's like kinetic energy, just like mass sitting around. Its energy is, a, is equivalent to its mass with the scale factor of the speed of light squared. Okay. So you can just literally just plug in mass in kilograms. Cause we're not savages using, you know, imperial units or some nonsense mm. like that. Just plug in energy, plug in the speed of light, crunch the numbers and you get, um, sorry, plug in mass. And, uh, I guessed like an average mass of a human being 
and did it. Roughly 180 gigajoules of energy. Now, you may not have a good feel for what a gigajoule is. So, I know what a gigawatt is because Dr. Uh, Brown talked about it in Back to the Future. Right. Very related. So a watt is a joule per second. That's a watt. It's a, it's a rate. Power is energy over time, right? So if this body is being tra- transformed into radiation, into energy, then it's releasing, like if it's being 100% converted with no um, inefficiency or whatever, like all of the mass is being converted to energy, there's 180-ish gigajoules being released, okay? Now, it's not important just how much, just like the energy just that it's also the rate you know that's how you get to power right so he says a few milliseconds so i said okay let's call it 10 milliseconds over 10 milliseconds it does it that's 18 terawatts for scale a nuclear reactor is like for heat so it, it's usually like a thousand megawatts electric and it's like 40 percent efficient so divide a thousand uh by 0.4 in order to figure out how much heat, which is, you know, how much energy. Uh, so that's 2,500 megawatts mm. for a nuclear reactor. Okay. And this is 18 tera. terawatts. So you go just over giga and into tera. This is like many times the heat output of a nuclear reactor over the course of a few seconds, obviously, you know. Uh, so, so if, bring this back to, my level here, if what you're saying is true and what he's saying is true and that the body actually went through this process of being converted into energy and it rematerialized somewhere else, and I don't know why he couldn't just say magic, but let's say he did, He's for whatever reason, it seems to me that there would be nothing left in that room. Th- that right? shroud is going to be incinerated. Like, yeah. I can't imagine that all it would do is singe the very outer little bits of the linen. I haven't done the calculations. Like, I don't know the, well, first of all, I don't even know what type of radiation that we're talking here. I mean, if it's just a straight up conversion, it would have to be photons because yeah, that's the only way you could, you could right. move energy without mass. Right. Uh, so I guess it would have to turn into like gamma rays, um, which gamma rays would pierce right through a shroud, but they would, then you wouldn't be blocked in that first like, like little bit of the the thread. You would see a full gradation of a thing, right? Well, it, if you yeah, like like it it would go right through it. So you'd you'd right. like to the to the extent that there's any shroud left, <laughs> you'd have yeah. a gradient. I don't know that there'd be any shroud. That's a lot. That's a lot of energy. Like I don't know that I'm I'm expressing just how much energy that is. I, I've, like. Nuclear bombs, the reason that a, a thermonuclear device works is it converts mass into energy. And it doesn't even convert all of it. It converts a fraction of the mass there into energy, and it levels cities. Okay? This is a lot of energy. <laughs> um, now, but what he says, though, is God can make the energy do whatever it wants, which, sure, God is an omnipotent being. He can do whatever he wants. Then why why do they constantly do this? Why do they constantly take science all the way up to the point where it's inconvenient and then just chuck it? Like, oh, well, E equals MC squared. It turned to energy and materialized through the thing. But all of the inconvenient uh, implications of that, well, God made the energy. Why not just say God put the freaking energy, well, put the, the, the image on the shroud? 
Just just skip all the intermediate steps. Why are we doing any of this? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. If, if you're if, gonna, if at the end you just say magic, then just go with that from the beginning. Like, right, right. Why why did you waste our time for this hour and a half at this point? If if the entire if your model is at the base, it's magic. Then just be honest with all of us and say it's magic. Yeah, I think we can kind of maybe wrap it up here because what. What we've seen, first of all, is that he claims a bunch of stuff at the very beginning. He starts with the weak argument. Like, There's so many things that we have to examine uh, as we're doing this if we felt necessary to like take it to its full extent. And that's why we didn't want to do that is because we didn't feel like this really warranted a full deep dive because it's... Right. But um, if hopefully this was at least entertaining, uh, we've seen... A lack of imagination that just boggles the mind. Compartmentalization where, like, at one point having a beard is compelling evidence and it's the no human could possibly make up a beard. Oh, yeah, that one doesn't have a beard. Don't worry about that. That little guy? I wouldn't worry about that little guy. I wouldn't worry about that little guy. (laughs) Why no thumbs? Yeah, (laughs) But but there's thumbs, yeah. And, and, And if you look closely, you can see thumbs. Nonsense! Poppycock! You just... Wasted my whole time talking about how there were no thumbs and now there's thumbs. Oh my gosh. My disappointment yeah. is immeasurable. My day is ruined. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, this is how it looks. This is the part of the process when we make this podcast you don't see. Exactly. Is us like yelling at our screen <laughs> we're listening to this stuff. But what um, we do do, though, is we actually write notes as we're doing this, right? We're like, all right, Jordan, you take this one. You're going to look into this. I'm going to look into this claim. And then we go and we do our research and actually try right. to find the evidence so that we can have well-informed opinions. So Yeah. Uh, so uh, that was our show. Like I said, if you liked it, let us know. This is kind of a new format for us. So let us know what you think. Uh, if you hated it or whatever, that's also useful to know. Um, share this around with your friends uh, and stay tuned for more skeptical content. I am going to be out probably for the next couple episodes because I've got someone's going to be cutting into my mouth with sharp implements. So I won't be speaking much after that. But uh, I think Jared has got some good stuff lined up. Yep. The next episode's going to be about simulation theory um, and have uh, somebody who's pretty knowledgeable on the topic and I believe is a physicist. Um, so we'll bring him on and, and see what we have to say there. And then I might do something solo in the future and kind of dive into some of more of my religious background. So we'll see what happens. But So stay tuned for that. And until then, remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.